1961, in a remote corner of West Virginia, a small group of scientists, astronomers, and businessmen are set to meet in a small conference with one purpose, to direct the search for intelligent radio signals from extraterrestrial civilizations. But before this group of futurists could take their first steps on their search, they needed an agenda. This is the story of how a meeting plan became one of the most well-known equations in modern science. Today on Beyond Terrestrial, we crunch the numbers of the Drake Equation. Beyond Terrestrial Podcast. I'm your host, Lee Errett, joined by my co-host, as always, Mr. Dan Martson. Myself, I'm coming to you from the Bell Witch's backyard inside the Haunted Barn Studios. And Dan, where are you located today, my friend? I am just down from the crossroads where Robert Johnson made his infamous deal with the devil. And in fact, Lee, we were on a uh, drive the other day. We went by a Robert Johnson museum. It was pretty cool. Nice. What'd they have? A guitar? Uh, yeah, they had like a mannequin out front. <laughs> it was all closed because of uh, all this uh, razzmatazz. Yeah. jazz. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, they had the mannequin propped up to uh, look like Robert from one of his... Uh, photos. He was only photographed like two or three times in his entire life. It's actually pretty crazy. Yeah, it's amazing that a person can be such a, I guess, pioneer in an industry and not be seen. Like, just not be seen. Well, that's what happens when you make a deal with the devil, man. I guess that is. I guess that is. So, Dan, we're talking about the Drake Equation today, and I understand that you've done a little research for us, as always. So, what are we going to be, where are we going with this? Well, uh, the story of the Drake Equation uh, goes back to the late 50s, early 60s, when uh, radio astronomy started to take off. Um, Now, Lee, have you ever... Uh, looked at any uh, how like radio astronomy works it's kind of crazy yeah I mean essentially they're they're listening for they're listening for different sounds that are emitted from different bodies within space and, and within the universe and everything emits a certain radio signal and they've they've kind of learned over time how to interpret some of those signals Am I with you? Yeah, sort of, Lee. Um, except they're not really listening. I mean, yeah, they are listening, but, it, I mean, it's electromagnetic waves, you know, just like light, just like ultraviolet, just like um, all these other things. Radio is on the EM spectrum, so um, bodies like stars and planets and all kinds of things have their own uh, radio waves, and so there you go. Boom. They, they dance to the beat of their own drum. They, they definitely do. 
1959, an article in Nature magazine grabbed the attention of readers with the headline, Searching for Interstellar Communications. The paper, written by Giuseppe Cocconi and Philip Morrison, speculated on which nearby stars would be a viable candidate to search for these communications and which radio frequencies would be best suited for interstellar communication. So, Lee, evidently they have a certain radio frequency that they believe is best suited for interstellar communication, and that is one that they try and pick up. Okay. All right. So it's, I'm sure it's like 98.5, The Rock. (laughs) Space's classic rock hits. You remember this one hit wonder from Bleep Blorp and the... (laughs) Oh... That's a good one. Oh, there's a Star Wars meme for you there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, anyway, Frank Drake credited this paper for being a watershed moment in what would become the field of astrobiology and the hard scientific search for alien life. Drake was working at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Green Bank, West Virginia. The Green Bank Observatory is still very operational and does some amazing astronomy work, but one of the coolest things about it is the facility is inside our National Radio Quiet Zone. Lee, you're a conspiracy theorist, my friend. I know you've heard of the National Radio Quiet Zone. Yeah, the National Radio Quiet Zone is a great place for DARPA to do all of their business, as well as the NSA to, um, how, how do you put it? Oh yeah. Spy on the American people. And not just, uh, the American people, they're actually spying on satellites in space. So any communication that's coming down, they're listening for, uh, from our foreign enemies and maybe from domestic partners as well, especially like businesses. Young people from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part, too. (laughs) They're doing their part. Are you? Join the mobile infantry and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. USA. USA. A lot of information about the National Radio Quiet Zone and the NSA's work there came out in the Snowden leaks. So they actually have a worldwide network of listening posts that are tuning their ears to signals from space, trying to hear what we say between different countries. It's actually pretty crazy. Well, you know... They got to get their intelligence from somewhere. We just give it to them uh, by using social media, things like podcasts and Facebook. Check out our Facebook page. (laughs) 
We're also on Twitter. <laughs> yes. Yes. Give them all the information. But also give it to us. Please. Uh, and in fact, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Please. Please. Especially if you think we are uh, childish and misinformed. Ooh. We like that one. We made a shirt out of that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh. Well, anyway, Lee, to uh, facilitate the work that the NSA and radio astronomers are doing inside the National Radio Quiet Zone, there are really strict limitations on radio broadcasts in this area, especially as you get closer and closer to the observatories. And it gets to the point where you cannot have a cell phone, a Wi-Fi router, a baby monitor, not even a cordless phone. Anything that produces a radio wave is against the rules within a certain distance from these observatories because the instrumentation there is so sensitive. Well, isn't that infringing on our liberties? No. Oh, okay. Uh, which amendment to the Constitution is it, Lee, that says you have the right to own a cell phone? The one that uh, it was part of the uh, of the the uh, never mind. Freedom yeah, of speech. So you're you free to say whatever you want on a landline phone. Oh, all landlines are 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 uh, internet based now, anyway. So that does not actually happen. say what. How many landlines have you found in the U.S. anymore that are not plugged into the back of somebody's modem? A lot, but no. I lived out in the boonies, so. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I tried to get a landline here at the house. Still vital infrastructure. I tried to get a landline here at the house a few months ago, and I could not get one. Nobody did a landline in uh, Clarksville, Tennessee. They all claim they did, and then they made you force or plug it into the back of your modem. And then I'm like, "That's not a landline. That's internet phone." This really? is going wow. nowhere, Dan. I'm sorry. Like, I don't know what we're doing. Uh, I didn't know. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, anyways, that's how it is, Lee. Um, and in fact, I saw a story about the National Radio Quiet Zone. They have guys in trucks with radio antennas going out to make sure there aren't any signals. And one guy in particular had a heated dog bed that was shorting out. And they were able to pick up a signal from that, and they had to go and buy him a new one. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. That's a cool story. Like, that's... I didn't even know you could detect stuff like that. I want one of those detectors. Yeah, it is pretty cool. What if their refrigerator so, goes on the fridge? Will they get him a new refrigerator? Maybe. Oh. Oh, I just threw up a little in my mouth. Oh. 
nasty. Um, <laughs> I'm keeping that in. Well, <laughs> that is that is going to get us off of this side tangent about the National Radio <laughs> Quiet Zone and back to the Drake equation. Let's go back um, to the real story. <laughs> Jesus. I'm sorry, Dan. <laughs> That's all right. So what happened was uh, Frank Drake, the guy who the equation's named for was approached by the National Academy of Sciences to organize a meeting on the potential search for extraterrestrial signals. The Kokoni Morrison article had grabbed the attention of Drake and others who had been noticing the technological advances of the time. It had become clear to this group of futurists that the technology to listen for extraterrestrial signals now existed, and the article in Nature helped bring them out of the woodwork. So these people, Lee, they just had seen the advance of technology, they saw the new observatories going up, and in their minds, they were like, this could become a future technology to find aliens. Okay. All right, so I I can see. Someone just had to put it out there for all of them to get together and be like, you know what? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And somebody just had to, like, they had to organize that meeting, and then and Mr. Drake was put in charge of that organization. Yeah, so he was tasked with making all the arrangements, and he invited everyone he knew who was working in this budding offshoot of astronomy. The 12 attendees of the meeting included radio astronomers, a chemist, a neuroscientist, businessmen, and traditional astronomers. Philip Morrison, who co-authored this uh, seminal Nature article that helped bring the subject to everyone's attention, was also in attendance as well as the much-venerated Carl Sagan. Oh yeah, Carl Sagan is a good choice for that. Yeah, and uh, this is like pre-Cosmos Carl Sagan, but I bet he was still wearing the turtlenecks. Oh, yeah, of course he was. It would be like Bill Nye without a bow tie. Right. You know what? You know, I'm sure there were years and years of Bill Nye's life where he didn't wear bow ties. Well, I mean, yeah, from like second grade to like junior high, I'm sure. But after that, (laughs) he was definitely wearing a bow tie. But he was also wearing a bow tie in kindergarten and first grade. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He had a rebellious face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, um, if if y'all don't know the works of Carl Sagan, a lot of his later writings would often be related to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. His most well-known work of fiction, Contact, is the story of a radio astronomer and details what might happen if a signal ever did reach the Earth from outer space. Lee, did you ever see Contact? I did not. You asked me this before, and we've gone over this. Uh, And the reason that I, I know that is because I listened to myself say this Uh, When we accidentally lost the footage. So, going back to the story. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Lee, but you should watch it sometime. I should. I should. It's it's a movie that would be right in my wheelhouse. It's just too old for me to be... I have... 
I guess I'm a typical millennial. Like, I can't handle it if it doesn't have, like, ex- ex- excessive CGI. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I have. No, if there's not, like, two explosions every 15 minutes, you're just out. Yeah, and I even have a hard time with, like, original Star Wars trilogy. Like, and I. And I mean, I no. watched it, but I just had a hard time with it initially. Like, it took me a while to come around to it. What? What? Dan, I'm sorry. Dan, I'm sorry. Like, there's not, there's not enough action in the original Star Wars it for you? It wasn't that there wasn't enough action in the original Star Wars. I have a really hard time when there's not, like, crisp detail. Dan, are you about to hang up on me? Like that- Crisp detail? With crisp detail. Yeah. Like, like, it because it wasn't shot in HD, is that your problem? Like, it wasn't 60 frames per second? Like, kinda. what are we talking about here? Kind of. That, that's the hard part for me. Like, anything older than 1999, I struggle with um, because it it's not clear enough for me. I'd like to say it's because I didn't have good eyesight, but uh, my eyesight's actually pretty good, so... I don't know what's wrong with me. Heaven forbid me watch a black and white movie. Like, it just doesn't happen. Oh, Lee. This is probably our last podcast. (laughs) Yeah, this is it. (laughs) This is a deal breaker. Um, (laughs) Wow, dude. Wow. Now, I didn't say. this This hurts me as a cinephile so much, like deep in my soul but continue now i didn't say that i don't watch them it's just that i don't immediately jump into interest in it i actually have to be told hey you should watch that before i'm like okay well let me try to check it out and then i have to like actively think the entire episode or like the entire thing just remember this isn't this wasn't like made last week you you're not gonna see just remember they didn't have that technology to make that that spaceship look like it flew more accurately and and stuff like that. What was the last black and white movie that you watched? Mm, It was probably a John Wayne movie. Um, One of his early works. My grandfather was really into John Wayne and I actually own 85% of John Wayne's movies and I still watch them on occasion. Really? Yeah. Hmm. You know, that's uh, kind of funny because the last black and white movie I watched was Stagecoach featuring John Wayne. Yeah, that was his first movie, I think, or really close to his first movie. Yeah, I think it might have been his feature debut. Yeah. Yeah. That was an old one, man. That was an old Uh, one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's good stuff. Um, That is a really big side tangent about works of fiction. Yes. But we've been talking for a little bit now we've been talking for a little bit now let's get back to the drake equation after we take a quick break to hear from some of our friends at fourth hand oh hey there count panic i got a question for you what's that bob what do you know about Mothman, the Loch Ness Monster, ghosts, demons, and things that go bump in the night? Not much, Bob. Well, lucky for you, we host a podcast called Bob After Dark, where we talk about legends, lore, and the supernatural. Wow, where can I find this podcast? Wherever you find your great podcasts at. (laughs) 
And we're back. Welcome back to Beyond Terrestrial, everybody. Dan was just regaling me on the story of the how the Drake equation came to be. And we were right at about the point where uh, I was talking about John Wayne. So let's get back to it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Frank Drake had been tasked by the National Academy of Sciences to hold a meeting on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And Drake had already run one experiment searching for nearby stars and radio signals, and now he needed to present an idea for furthering that search to the attendees of the meeting. Here is a quote from Drake himself. He said, As I planned the meeting, I realized a few days ahead of time we needed an agenda, and so I wrote down all the things you needed to know to predict how hard it is going to be to detect extraterrestrial life. And looking at them, it became pretty evident that if you multiplied all these together, you got a number, N, which is the number of detectable civilizations in our galaxy. This was aimed at the radio search and not to search for primordial or primitive life forms. So Thus, essentially what Drake he's saying is... was born. Not really in... Yeah, not really... It's, it's not really an exact mathematical equation about precisely how many stars have intelligent life orbiting them, but rather a conversation starter that could be debated and refined to help direct our efforts to find life beyond the Earth. And yes, so essentially what what he's saying is that we're looking for essentially life forms that are at roughly our level and above um, using radio signals right. on a regular basis and uh, either intentionally broadcasting those radio signals into space or accidentally doing it as in the stuff that we do day to day and how Glipglorp on planet cesium 422 uh, knows that I like to watch fluffy bunnies on Facebook on a very regular basis. <laughs> he also knows some other stuff about me, but we're not going to talk about that here. I was going to say that, Lee. I was like, is fluffy bunnies code for something? <laughs> and by Facebook, do you mean Pornhub? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, 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 of course not. I don't know what you're talking no. about. Well, um, no, no, no. So, so yeah, um, let's get let's break down the terms of the Drake equation and what they all mean. So this is going to be pretty funky, but bear with me for a moment. So the Drake equation reads from left to right. Um, N equals R times F sub P times n sub e times f sub 1 times f sub i times f sub c times l where n is the number of civilizations that we might be able to communicate with in our galaxy r is the average rate of star formation in the galaxy f sub p is the fraction of those stars that have planets 
N sub E is the average number of planets that could potentially support life. F sub 1 is the fraction of planets that could support life that actually develop life. F sub I is the fraction of planets with life that go on to develop intelligent life. F sub C is the fraction of those intelligent civilizations that develop the technology to communicate and send signals into space. And L is the length of time at which those civilizations send those signals out into space. So some of these, Lee, the way this is written is actually really interesting because it starts with the hard science. Um, R sub star, that's like the rate of star formation in the galaxy. We have really good science about what we think is happening out there in the galaxy. And then as it moves on, it gets to more and more ambiguous Space terms. Space farts. Like L, yeah. So we don't really know how, how long a civilization might broadcast. That is anyone's guess. So it's kind of neat how this, uh, how this works. <clears throat> um, I, I feel like stars are created by space whale farts. Is that correct? Um, no, but it's not completely inaccurate. It's hydrogen gas that condenses in space. So sort of, how do you know that wasn't laid there by a space whale or better yet? What about interdimensional Bigfoot? Couldn't have been inter- interdimensional Bigfoot seeding the galaxy mm-hmm. with stellar nebulae. Well, I mean, he's just very gassy, especially when he has a lot of beans. Oh, wow. Wow. What a dad joke. What a groaner. Oh, my God. Oh. Lee, what's happening? There's a light. It's coming from the corner of the closet. Oh, my God. Oh, I, my I, God. I, Lee. Dan, what's going on? Dan. Lee, you've you've done it again. You've summoned interdimensional Bigfoot. Ah, dang it, Lee. I was right in the middle of a killer game of roller coaster tycoon. Roller coaster tycoon? Yeah, you know, you got the little people and they play and they go into the different wow. roller coasters. Yeah, and then once they go on the roller coasters, then you can remove a piece of the track and kill them all. <laughs> Wow, that's really interesting, Shifty. We just did a show on simulation theory and games like Roller Toaster, Roller Coaster Tycoon. That's pretty cool. So, well, uh, you know, I'm sorry we bugged you during your video game time. Lee's just, he always throws this Bigfoot thing in, you know? Like, what do you do? I don't know what you do. I just feel like he might be just a little bit obsessed with me, you know? I, I mean... I, I gotta say, Lee, I'm married. I wish I could convey that information to you, but every time I'm here, you disappear. Oh, really? You know, I didn't notice the ring because of all the fur, but yeah. Oh, wow. That's really nice. Yeah, yeah. Good for you. Shifty. Yeah, she's, she's um, a, a well, beautiful orangutan-based uh, based bride. A um, little bit flat-faced, but you know, I love her anyway. <laughs> Well, you know what they say, Shifty, if you want to be happy for the rest of your life, never make... You, you know that song, right? No. No, I, I 
I don't know that song. What? Yeah, tell me more about that song. <laughs> uh, I don't think I can because of copyright reasons. But um, yeah, ah. you know what, Shifty? The 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 rift here oh. in space time. I can see it right behind oh. you if you just oh. Oh, thank you. Uh, head thank out you. that way. Every every time I, I it's really hard yeah. for me to hey. yeah. Hey, it's really hard for me to see, so I have a hard time finding the rifts once I've been summoned here. So thank you for your help letting me find it. Yeah, that's why you're always turning your head in those videos. I can I kind of pick yeah. up what's happening with you, man. Yeah, that's All right, well, exactly. thanks for dropping it. Well, hey, oh, wait okay, a minute, see, Shifty. Yeah, well, well, Before uh, you go, what? you're an interdimensional being. You've been all around the cosmos. Um, do you have any insights on the Drake equation? As a matter of fact, I do. I know exactly how many species of sentient being are in the universe. Really? Absolutely. It's just a little more sophisticated than yours. Oh. Yeah, I mean, uh, you want me to tell you? I, I, I guess I could. Yeah, yeah, hit me with it. Hit me with it. 354.2. 354.2? Yeah. How do you get point two? Well, you're the point two. Oh, <laughs> uh, what? Oh, he just walked out. Oh, my gosh. Shifty with the burn and the mic drop. Just, well, oh, what? the rift is closed. Dan, did it happen again? Every time it, like, interferes with our signal. I can't see what's going on. Oh, my God. Wow. Wow, Lee. So, yeah, Bigfoot was here, and he was telling me how many uh, civilizations there are in the galaxy. I've, I've actually already forgotten. I think something happened. Like, my my memory of these events just so quickly, it evaporates. Like, I Why do you always get to talk to him? Like, I want to talk to him, but it's always you. I, Dude, I, it's some, uh, my closet must be like in a ley line or something like that. That that's probably it. That's probably it. I thought my haunted barn would help out with that, but apparently not. Yeah. Well, let's get back to the science <clears throat> of the Drake equation, Lee. So, like I said, the terms uh, go from being really scientific to a little bit more ambiguous as we move through the equation. So, the first term is r sub star. That's the rate of star formation in the galaxy, and this is pretty highly studied by regular astronomers. Using infrared, x-rays, and other non-optical wavelengths, we can look through the clouds of these stellar nurseries and into the nebulae where stars are being formed. And our current estimate is that about three solar masses are formed each year. Now, that doesn't mean three suns just like ours are formed every year um, but our sun is pretty average so uh, you can lower that number a bit maybe one and a half to three stars a year the original estimate from the green bake meeting was one so we have found out that what's actually going on out there is actually a little bit higher than what they thought hmm so three stellar masses that's that's kind of like like at Nickelback concerts when there's all of those masses of people there. That's a stellar mass. Am I wrong? Shut the fuck up, Donnie. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. We hate Nickelback. Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, you're wrong. Everyone... Yeah, you're wrong. That's not exactly how it is. But, um, yeah, so the idea is not ex- not necessarily three stars, just like our sun. Uh, some of those stars are going to be smaller, like red dwarfs, that sort of thing. Um, so the next term is the fraction of those stars that have planets. Now, this is one of the terms where science has really leapt forward in the last decade. We have discovered a lot of exoplanets, thousands of them, in fact. So the fraction of stars with planets, we think, is a number near one. And that's a huge boost to the original estimate. Uh, They originally thought it was 0.2 to 0.5. So essentially, like, almost... Every star is has at least one planet or so, uh, give or take some. Sounds like it's near one, so it's not quite every star, but that's a that's a huge percentage. Yeah, based on what we are seeing now with all the exoplanets out there, we believe that most stars have planets. So that's pretty cool. But the thing is, not all of those planets are really suited for life and that brings us to the next term uh that's the number of planets that can support life or f sub uh oh i said f sub one i think this is f sub l f sub l yeah that sounds right uh the l would stand for life yeah sorry i must have said one before because i thought that that lowercase l looked like a one (laughs) it's okay oh i'm so dumb yeah so f sub l um now this is difficult to estimate for a lot of reasons first and foremost we have only seen one planet where life has occurred and that's this one based on what we see in geology here we think that once the conditions are right life will uh life will uh uh, find a way i'm sure it always does (laughs) it always does Um, yeah, but we don't really Clever know girl. how these conditions arise on other planets or if abiogenesis, life from nothing, will happen there. Uh, we don't know how it happened here. So this estimate is really colored by how rare you think life is. Uh, some estimates I'm pretty are sure one. I know Others how it happened very, here. Very low. I'm pretty sure really? I know how it happened here. I think it was on what an episode of Futurama. Anyway, it involves time travel and, you know, um, some awkward things into a pool, and then life just you know, <laughs> finds a way. Finds a way. Finds a way, yeah. Um, that's, yeah, that's a pretty good guess. Um, <laughs> Dan's like, Dan, I'm ruining this. I'm just throwing every joke I possibly can at the wall, and if it doesn't <laughs> land... You know what? I'm just throwing a cricket chirp in. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, oh, shoot. I skipped one. The term N sub E, the number of those planets that are Earth-like. Okay. So. 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 The fraction of stars that have planets could be one. Whether or not those planets are Earth-like is very important, at least for life as we know it. Um, some of those planets are going to be like big old hot Jupiters that are gas giants orbiting very close to their star that would not, uh, as far as we know, harbor life. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I, the hard part is we don't know what, what life is exactly. We even have a hard time. We, we are even debating as of we're still debating whether or not a virus would be considered a form of life. And that is makes it a little bit hard to determine whether or not life would be supported on something like a gas giant. But it definitely would not be supported in the same way that we are. And it would be so foreign to us that I, I doubt we'd ever be able to interact with it. Yeah, so there's just going to be a lot of factors that go into this. The distance a planet is from its star, whether or not it's tidally locked to that star, the mass of the planet, the composition, whether or not there's water. You know, that's a real big one. So for the term N sub E, we have some estimates as high as 0.4, but there are so, just like I was saying, so many other factors there's some theorists who think it's actually much, much lower. Uh, right now, the estimated number of Earth-sized planet, Earth-like planets in the galaxy is a number, they're thinking around 11 billionly. You know, that's a pretty small number. <laughs> yeah, not too many of No, those. not many at all. Um, so... Despite the fact that there are all these planets, there's a group of uh, rare Earth theorists who believe that in developing intelligent life on a pla planet requires almost the perfect conditions that led to life on Earth. I think there is some observational bias for that position, right? Thinking that it would have to happen exactly like it happened for us for other aliens um, but until it can be tested it's a completely valid hypothesis radiation, asteroid bombardment magnetic fields even axial tilt are all factors on whether or not a planet could support life and we haven't even mentioned the possibility that life could exist on uh, moons, satellites, asteroids all kinds of different bodies the hard part when you're talking about extraterrestrial life is it is it's potentially so far different than us that it may not like grow exactly like we did it even though most of you know aliens and science fiction and if, if they're a bad alien they're depicted like you know a lot different than us but if they're a good alien or they're relatively close to us we tend to get along with them better and it uh, it's hard to to think of an alien species being so far different from us that we that we would just dismiss it and it, it there's no way it could be in, intelligent it could be like the uh the um bugs from starship troopers for all we know and uh they you know they had intelligence technically ish they had the brain bugs right right so, yeah, I mean, it could be weird out there, Lee. Who knows? I hope it's weird aliens. out there. So, so yeah, whether or not a planet is Earth-like is going to be a very, very big factor in how many civilizations exist out there. And then, and then after that, uh, we already talked about F sub L. Just because a planet is Earth-like doesn't necessarily mean it will develop life. We hope it would. 
Um, it did here, so fingers crossed. Uh, so now that we are kind of guessing, we kind of have to keep on guessing. Uh, the next term is F sub I, the fraction of planets that have life, which will develop into intelligent life. Again, based on our observations of life here on Earth, you can have two very opposing ideas of this term. Either one, because we are here and we are intelligent, that number must be close to one. Or two, because there are millions of species on this planet and only one is intelligent, that number is very, very low. If you're in the first camp, you can't help but think that once life starts branching out, becoming more complex, there is a convergence towards intelligence, eventually an intelligent species will arrive on the scene. But if you are in the second camp, you realize that we are rare among the species of the Earth. We are like them and very much not like them. Language, self-awareness, consciousness. We don't really understand how these ideas um, actually arose in humans. So we can't really extrapolate that idea to alien civilizations. I, I feel like I, I fall in the category of life is eventually going to get to the intelligence level. I think the biggest one is time. I think that would be the biggest limiter there. There There's a there's talk yeah, I that mean, I've heard um, about. An Earth-like planet. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say an Earth-like planet could be wiped out by an asteroid. All the life, boom, mm -hmm. dead, gone. So, and it could have been on the verge of transitioning into intelligent life. That doesn't mean that we would have ever heard or seen anything of it. It, it could be something as small as the, uh, the thought process of the great, uh, what is that word? The great filter. And that, that's just, the great filter may be a lot earlier than the thought processes. The great filter is essentially spacefaring species the reason we haven't seen many of them is because there or any of them is because there is a, a limit to most intelligent species destroy themselves or be destroyed before they get to a point where they can travel interstellarly if not all right and that that tends to do more with the last term L, the length of time that an intelligent species is communicating. Um, the last factor that we haven't talked about is F sub C, whether or not an intelligent species develops the ability to communicate. Um, now, these communications, they don't have to be deliberately, you'd already mentioned that, we're blasting all kinds of radio signals into the sky, and we aren't intentionally saying, here we are, please come visit. We're just putting a lot of info out there, mostly over-the-air TV broadcasts. Now, we don't know what another intelligent species would do if they would even develop this technology, but we can assume that if they did develop science, they would eventually send out some kind of signal. This brings up the question, should we be sending out signals? Would we be inviting hostile beings to pick us apart? Or would we find the intelligent species that can solve Earth's problems with magical technology? 
by my experience on Earth with human beings, probably not the best idea. There's lots of evidence of uh, more advanced species, or sorry, more advanced people. We're all people. Uh, coming to a new location where the people don't have as much advanced technology and basically just ruining that new location in one way or another, whether we're, whether we're, you know, eliminating an entire civilization or just, yeah, tearing down an entire rainforest that sustained life and tribes for their for you know all of eternity as far as they're concerned but now they don't have any place to live cuz we've just logged them out of existence. Yeah, totally. And uh I don't think we should send out any signals. If you've ever read uh, the book Guns, Germs and Steel, you'd see over the course of history, if you come with more technology, you win. You get to mm-hmm. take whatever the other guy has. And that has played out over centuries of human existence. Yeah, and it's hard to imagine another advanced or another species or another race not being at least similar in aspects with that, where they're going, like, they're obviously going to be more advanced than us if they're able to come to us. And it's just hard not to imagine or imagine them being ben- or entirely benevolent. And this is probably going to get us yeah, another and- misinformed statement, but uh, it's really hard to imagine that. Right. Well, just gambling the entire future of the planet on the chance that they might be benevolent is probably not a good idea. Best case scenario, it's a 50-50 wager. Like, that's the best case scenario, but it's probably closer to 60-40 or higher. (laughs) 60-40. Give me, like, (laughs) 80-20. 90-10. Honestly, it's probably more like 90-10. Yeah. Yeah, I have a hard time with it. I'm with you there, Dan. I I really am. Mm Mm-hmm. So the last term that we already talked about a little bit is L, the length of time that a intelligent species is communicating. Is civilization a cycle that rises and falls? Is it a process that builds and builds, hitting bumps along the way, but always moves forward? On Earth, human civilizations tend to rise and fall every three or four hundred years, but this steady rise and fall has always tended to move forward technologically, and all of that up and down happened before the advent of nuclear weapons, to be completely honest. But even if intelligent species like us are destined to destroy ourselves, the term L could still be very large. A wise species with sufficient technology could avoid the perils of life on a single planet by venturing to the stars. If they could harness the vast resources of the cosmos, their species could become, in effect, immortal. This type of society would weight the term L heavily towards larger numbers. But if there is some kind of immortal, wise, ancient species in our galaxy, heck, if there is any intelligent species out there, where the heck are they? 
So that's an interesting statement. There's there's a couple thought processes, at least, that run in my head. And really, there's a couple, like, there, there's a couple options. We could be similar to a zoo where they're watching us. They try to stay out of sight as much as possible, and they just try to keep an eye on us and make sure we don't blow ourselves up or cause irreparable damage to something like, I, I don't know, space-time or what, what have you, uh, which you, you never know. Maybe that's something that's possible. My other thought process right. is they just don't exist, or they possibly seeded us in one way or another. It's hard to say in that aspect. If you go with what um, most alien theorists go with so many of them are human-like in different ways it's hard not to think that there's some cross pollinization between different worlds if those species existed i mean yes they've got there's a lot of them that are vastly different in in morphology and design but for the most part most the vast majority of alien visitation experiences seem to be human-like in one way or another. It's hard to not... Uh, like even, even reptilians who are very different than us still have two legs, two arms, and seem very humanoid. Interestingly interesting. Well, I think we'll wrap up this conversation uh, with the Fermi Paradox panspermia and great filters after we take another quick break believe in ufos felt that chill up your spine that you just can't explain contemplate the other side of reality do you shake your head at the world that seems to have lost its common sense? Well, look no further than Strange Uncles. Find them on all podcast platforms and call their hotline to tell your side of reality at 801-252-6945. Open the gates. Right before the break, Lee was talking about alien encounters, what people have reported in these encounters, the generally humanoid figures that they see, and whether or not maybe all life in the galaxy is related, how these civilizations got to be here. Now, Lee, you already touched on great filters. The These these great filters are weeding out other life forms at some stage in the process. We're not really sure where it is. Mm -hmm. We don't know if we've already gone past it. We don't know if it's looming ahead of us. That's pretty scary. It's, it's hard. And my thought process with the great filter is there's probably several throughout the development of a, um, if there is intelligent life out there throughout the development of an intelligent species, 
there has to be multiple times where one misstep could have could have torn it all down. I mean, we are still in an age where one misstep from an angry little guy across the world, or for that matter, somebody with sausage fingers here in the U.S. Um, <laughs> sorry. No, dude, it could happen. Could it could happen? Could essentially destroy us to a point where the mm-hmm. world is non-livable anymore. And so, did we pass that first great filter? Yeah, I'm sure we did because we haven't blown ourselves up yet. But now we have that technology. We've actually advanced past the initial phase of that technology, and we're still in some peril with that. So, is it? Is it one great filter or is it multiple chances throughout the life of an intelligent species that one misstep, one bad apple, one one silly mistake or overlook could have or could let an entire civilization just fall? I mean, even right. if it's even if it's not related to us killing ourselves, there's still the possibility of uh, a negligent scientist missing uh, a near fly or nearby asteroid that impacts the earth and destroys us just like the dinosaurs. Um, so I don't know, maybe it's just right. me. And, and I say so, negligent scientist, but it, <laughs> I get. Yeah. So Lee, when it comes down to it, like we have the technology to destroy ourselves and we've had this technology for a while now. And the longer and longer that we have this technology, I mean, eventually it's going to be used. That's the, that's the sad fact of it. So either, either we have to rise above all of this crap that has existed in all of human history and not use our most powerful weapons against other people, or we're eventually going to use them, and life as we know it will be dramatically altered. Maybe, if we're lucky and people show some restraint, the planet will not be completely wiped out, but we might end up living in a new dark age. Yeah, and, you know, it's possible. There, There is a limit to that that I see in the future as... If we hit a point where, yes, we still have the technology, we've held on to it and we've managed to not flip the switch for a long enough period of time, and now we have the technology to no longer be isolated to this one speck of dirt in the cosmos, then yes, of course, having that technology is not going to destroy all life, all human life. But that's a long way away. That's a long way away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and you know, the Star Trek future might be the future. Uh, fingers crossed that that's going to be the future because you know Star Trek future is pretty sweet. So hopefully it'll be like that. Um, and who knows? Hopefully, like you were saying, Lee, uh, other species that exist out there in the cosmos are humanoid. Maybe there is some kind of panspermia that links us all together. Uh, some kind of seeding that has gone on for millions of years, possibly. Yeah. That 
happened way, way, way before any humans were ever here to think about anything. Yeah, maybe it's the maybe it's literally the building blocks of life, and that's that's how it evolves, and that's how it's designed to evolve. Uh, fine, but there is like a certain amount of how does that happen? I mean, we are all distantly related to reptiles. We are all distantly related to dinosaurs, birds, and all that. But we are very far from them as well. So how do they, how would, if these stories are correct, how would beings like the avians and the reptilians, how would they still look so similar to us and not end up with tentacles and other things like that? Right. Well, um... You know, it's interesting. Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, is one who likes to point out this little fact. Two percent of our DNA is different from chimpanzees. We share 98 percent of our DNA with chimpanzees. The in that two percent difference is everything that makes humans special. Our art, culture, language, science love mm-hmm. like just everything that we have recognized as artistic beauty as as thinking creatures is in that 2%. Imagine another species that's 2% more advanced than us. Like to to them we're the chimpanzees. How advanced would they be? And that's I mean it's scary. And that's exactly what I'm kind of getting at with the with the possibility of us being similar to a zoo where we are like children to them in one way or another and they are just kind of watching us. Uh that doesn't mean that they're not or that they're benevolent necessarily. We're not entirely benevolent to all of our creatures that we have in zoos. We just want to study them. And that is kind of where I see if there is alien life out there and if if there is inter, interdimension or interstellar life out there that's able to travel uh, through space at a rate that makes it feasible, then there's really only those two options. Th- that one or that they've been here all along and uh, they're... Uh, plotting to take over the world right okay Lee, i want to point one out um so at zoos one of the big things that they do is breed captive populations and extracting genetic material from zoo animals is a pretty big deal mm-hmm. so you've heard all those stories about the aliens and all their sexy little experiments that they like to do Sometimes they want to, you know, some, sometimes they're like the Nords and they come down and they're like, Hey, you boom, Mm -hmm. bounce chicken. Wow. Wow. Sometimes they're not so nice when they try and extract this material. Yep. Um, it can be, it can be pretty gnarly. So are they, are they trying to do this for, I don't know, the purpose of keeping us in captivity to have our genetic material and study it? Is it, is that it, what it's like? Like this is a zoo to them, and they just come down and pick us up and bone us, or or 
jerk us off or anally probe us or I mean, we do it whatever. to bulls all the time. Just, <laughs> just saying. Yeah. Yeah, man. You, you know what? I've always, uh, on the one hand, I've always felt bad for the guy whose job it is to, you know, get the bull off. But on the other hand, it's actually pretty lucrative. Yeah. 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 Sorry. <laughs> so there's a lot of, there's a lot of money in that genetic. There material. is a lot of money in that genetic material. So it's it's a tough one for me. Uh, and honestly, it's either that or they just don't exist at all. Would they be right? And that gets into the Fermi paradox. You know, if there is intelligent life out there, where are they? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's possible that. Some somewhere along the way, either the potential intelligent life that could travel the cosmos, it's so rare that we just haven't, you know, they just haven't come across us and we haven't, you know, learned of them in any way. Or it's, there is a, a great filter that literally limit, limits it so much so that we are, we are potentially on par with any other intelligent race out there. We, there, there, we're not, or there is no real other intelligent life that can travel farther than their own solar system. Mm-hmm. Now, Lee, I think you might have hit on it. This is what I think's going on. Um, our radio bubble is actually shockingly small when you compare it to the entire galaxy, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's very unlikely that another civilization has heard us. I think we probably did pass one or multiple great filters along our way to this civilization. And maybe life out there is relatively rare, not extremely, but it's just when our civilization develops, another one has to be at a stage of development that they can hear us. And close enough to hear us. And that just might not necessarily happen. Like, and, you know, we could be shit out of luck. Yeah, and there. we've only been really sending up radio signals for, what, the last hundred years? And that's giving us a little bit, right? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, for TV, like, TV didn't really start until the 30s. Mm-hmm. So they were sending out radio signals. Um what Marconi started sending out the first radio signals in like the 18 late 1800s. So yeah, not about a hundred years, maybe a little more, but not by much. So, yeah. So that's how it is. And, you know, maybe we, maybe there isn't an alien broadcast out there. Maybe other aliens as they developed just like us thought, you know what? Maybe it's best if we don't blast a radio signal out in the space looking for aliens. Yeah, exactly. So what is getting out is exactly like us. It's stuff that's snuck out. It's not stuff directed out into the cosmos. So it's not as likely to to catch our attention for one. For two, it it's limited by how far it can travel. And it ours hasn't traveled very far. Why would theirs? So, right. Well, and if you think about it, modern science really took off with like the industrial revolution. You could say it goes back to, you know, Galileo and some of those guys, maybe even the ancient Greeks. 
but the vast majority of human history, we're hunters and gatherers. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about a very short span that we've actually developed science. Maybe an intelligent species could exist out there that just never gets around to being scientific. The, you know, they, they, they stick with uh, at roughly the Bronze Age kind of realm. Right. It, it could be dogmatic. It could be all kinds of reasons. Maybe they don't have the resources that we have. Maybe it's cultural. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows? Yeah, I mean, the factors are endless. And you just, you could, you can't really know until we find another alien out yeah. there what they're going to be like. And I feel like for me, it's hard not to believe there's something out there with the vastness of the cosmos, the, the amount of different potentials. It's just where that is, where that, that intelligent life is. Are they slightly behind us? Are they slightly in front of us? Are they roughly on par with us? Or are they just so far away from us and so foreign that we have no idea that they're right next to us or you know what i mean right or or and when you know the the universe is billions of years old the galaxy's been around for a hell of a long time there could have been an interstellar species rise and fall and we never knew about it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and if they're not sending out signals we aren't going to know that they existed until we actually find some kind of artifact of their existence. Pyramids. I'm wearing the shirt, Dan. I'm wearing the shirt. <laughs> you got the Sucolos shirt? I got the Sucolos shirt on today. Oh, my God, dude. Wow. No, I, it's... Yeah, I I love talking you about You know, this. We, we should do a show on ancient aliens theories because I... I actually really hate them. Really? <laughs> I didn't know. Yeah. I, no, I I really think it discounts the abilities of um, older civilizations, people that we consider to be primitive. Like, you know, those guys built some pretty yeah. amazing cities. The Aztecs built their capital city on a lake in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's not the it's not the theory that ancient aliens came to this world and built this stuff I believe that if if aliens visited us in the distant past is it possible that a lot of the dogma that occurred during the distant past create or was created because of alien uh, visitation so for example um, stories of angels stories of talking with the gods and stuff like that is some of that related to alien visitation? It's not that they didn't build the pyramids. Aliens built the pyramids for me. I, I don't believe that. I think 100% any of the major structures that are on Earth were built by humans. I don't think they were designed by somebody else. I think 100% we designed it, we built it. Why did we design it and build it is my question sometimes. Mm. Yeah, well, don't uh, don't underestimate the devotion to people's gods and rulers. It's crazy, um, especially you know uh, different cultures thousands of years ago. I mean, it can't. It's hard to really compare it to today. So sorry, Dan. I didn't guys. mean to. 
we that have be a been fun talking. Conversation. Sorry. No, that's <laughs> that's the thing about the Drake equation is it is supposed to be a conversation starter, uh-huh. and we have talked a lot about uh, how an alien civilization could arise, the factors that it would take out there in space for a civilization to arise what it would be like uh, if they potentially contacted us. Lots of different ideas out there. Great for sci-fi fans. Guys, thank you for listening to Beyond Terrestrial. If you guys have any idea about what is the biggest factor in intelligent life existing in the universe, let us know. Tell us about it. Hit us up on our Facebook page, on Twitter, at BeyondTPod. Guys, we are out there. We are listening. Just, uh, you know, tell us something. And we're very responsive. We want to talk to you. Exactly. We want to hear from you guys. If you can't find any of those things, we have links on our website. It's BeyondTerrestrial.com. Super easy to find. You type in BeyondTerrestrial and add a .com, and you'll find all the links to us and our fellow podcasts on the 4th Hand Network. Once again, guys. Boom. What? <laughs> Boom. Once again, guys, thank you for listening to Beyond Terrestrial. And always remember to keep your eyes out there, Beyond Terrestrial. Thank you for listening to Beyond Terrestrial Podcast. You can check us out on Apple Pod, Google Play, and other major podcast platforms. And if you want to keep up with the show goings on, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Beyond T Pod. That's Beyond the Letter T Pod. And as always, you can get all of that information as well as show notes and episodes as they come out on BeyondTerrestrial.com. That's right, we got the .com. And if you want to help out the show, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or a like and a review wherever you listen to Beyond Terrestrial. You've been listening to a fourth-hand joint.